The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Anne Betts. She co-founded Be Above Leadership and is an international speaker and trainer on the intersection of neuroscience, coaching and human transformation. Anne speaks internationally on neuroscience, leadership and coaching, and she excels at making the complexities of the brain come to life with depth, humor and simplicity. In this episode, we'll explore how dopamine might influence narcissistic behaviors, including their tendency to provoke others and how this connection may lead to issues like gambling and addiction. We'll also look into the genetic aspects of narcissism and compare narcissists, sociopaths and psychopaths. Let's get started. Hi, Anne Betts. Thank you for joining me today. It's nice to have you here today. It's great to be here. I love talking with you. Great. I love that too. And uh, I mean, I love talking with you and <laughs> not with myself. Anyway, today we have an uh, interesting topic and I would uh, want to get started with it. And the first question that we have is, can you talk about the dopamine and the narcissist? Yeah. So it's a um, maybe a little bit of a little bit of background. So when I was involved with a very, very toxic person a number of years ago, um, I couldn't understand why he behaved a certain way. And because I have a neuroscience background, I'm a neuroscience expert. That was one of the first things I did was try to say, okay, if he's behaving this way and it's very typical, what is driving that. It's not that they read a manual on how to be a narcissist. (laughs) Let's hope Mm. they didn't read the book about it, but that there's something happening. And so what seems to be the case and more research needs to be done. I have to tell you, this is all, it's difficult to research narcissists because they don't self-identify. Like, so what I mean by that is if I Um, it's easier to research somebody who has depression because they'll say like, yeah, I'm depressed, but Mm -hmm. a narcissist very often won't say, yeah, I'm a narcissist. (laughs) Or even if they do, they don't think it's a problem. So uh... it's a very, it's a, it's difficult to really research them very well. They're working on it. But what seems to be the case is that narcissists have some kind of disrupted relationship to dopamine and other reward chemicals, probably in particular that one. So dopamine in the brain is, it actually does a lot of different things in the brain. It even is related to muscular control and lactation. It does a lot of things. But one of the ways that most people know about it is that it's part of the reward system. So there's a reward system in the brain. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that plays a major role in that. And what dopamine does is it basically says, this thing is interesting. Like it gives us that little bit of zhuzh, like, ooh, this is interesting. This is rewarding. I should do more of that. So with narcissists, what seems to be the case is that they, um, we don't totally know, but what 
what so far what the research points to is that they dopamine tends to dissipate in them more quickly than other people. And it may even affect them more strongly. So they're always a little low. It's like they're always running a little low on this and they're always looking for something that will give them that feeling of reward. One of the best ways to get dopamine is do something new or do something challenging. So this is why for narcissists, a new relationship um, or a relationship where they're not as sure of themselves, they haven't locked it down yet, is more rewarding. By the time that you start hanging out for a while, you're not new and you're maybe not that challenging to them. You've said, I love you. You've moved in together. It's all like, you know, and you're thinking the target is thinking, this is great. You know, we're, we're bonding. No, they're not bonding. They're bored. So let, tell me what makes sense or what questions you have about that so far. I don't want to yeah. thank much you. in the lecture. Yeah. Yeah. So they understood right that dopamine to narcissists they feel it more strongly but it escapes their body or goes away from their body uh quicker compared to people with not yeah. no narcissistic traits and the part about do they feel it more strongly i'm not sure if that's totally validated but it does mm. seem to be that for whatever reason it doesn't it doesn't um, stay with them. Um, and then there's another aspect to this. Uh, so they're, they're always, it's like I said, they're always looking for it. Mm. This may be because there's something that gets created in terms of how narcissists get, narcissists get created with early either abuse or neglect, um, that that impacts that so it, it could be that it creates a certain way that the neurotransmitters are dealt with in the brain. And it also can be habituation. If you've had a lot of chaos early in life, if you've had a lot of change, if you've had a lot of abuse, really, one of the things that can happen is that you become habituated to large influx of many different stress chemicals and dopamine is a stress chemical as well as a reward chemical. So uh, you just get kind of habituated to it and it takes a lot more to get you kind of excited and like that. Okay. Yeah. Well then that, unless I'm misunderstanding something, but then if that, that you get habituated with the dopamine because of the, you know, chaos in the childhood so that the narcissist would get habituated, then that wouldn't make sense to me that the dopamine would feel more strongly to them. Right. Well, that it's, they... That's the part that I don't know yeah. has totally been validated yet, yeah. but the thing that does seem to be the case. So let's, so there's some research that seems to be pointing there, but as I said, the research on narcissism when I've looked at the neuroscience research on narcissism, it's not solid yet. It's not as good as the research on psychopaths. Mm -hmm. It's easier to study psychopaths than it is to study narcissists because psychopaths often end up in prison. So you can, <laughs> you've got like this population. So there's some question about that, but let's just go to this, that they're always seeking it because they're either habituated to it or there's some way they process it, which is different than most people. Mm -hmm. um, and it also seems to be their primary reward 
chemical. And so what I mean by this, so it's very well known that in relationships, for example, that we have the honeymoon phase in relationships. So we have like, you know, we're super excited about the person all the time and we're thinking about them and we can't wait to see them. And every little touch is like, ah, that's dopamine. That's the dopamine phase. And everybody knows that fades, you know, but with most neurotypical non-narcissistic people, what happens is other, you go into a different chemical state with your partner and you go more, you, other hormones get activated, hormones and neurotransmitters like um, oxytocin and vasopressin. And that's more bonding. You may not have the excitement, but you feel more safe and secure and you grow into a deeper relationship over time because you're getting this oxytocin, this vasopressin, those are like long-term bonding chemicals. Narcissists don't seem to be as, as heavily impacted by that. They, that they just go into this constant looking for excitement and reward. And so, you know, the example that the thing that the behavior that I couldn't figure out being, I think, a more typical person, hopefully, is that when I moved from the honeymoon stage with the guy that I was with in, in a romantic partnership, and we got to know each other better, he stopped being interested in spending time with me. And that really confused me so much. So, you know, we'd have dinner together and then he'd be like, oh, I'm too tired to hang out. And he would just like, we'd have like two hours, like an hour a day that we actually spent any time together. And I couldn't understand because for me being in a relationship, that's really like you cuddle together, at, you, you know, watch TV together, you do something that's just sort of nice. And he was completely uninterested in that. And I could not figure out why until it sort of occurred to me, oh, He's looking for the dopamine. I'm looking for the oxytocin, which is more of a trust chemical. It's more of a bonding one. And he's not interested. Now, here's the other evidence for this. The only time he was interested in spending time with me was when we were doing things that produced dopamine for him. So for example, if we were drinking, having alcohol, if we were, you know, having a really nice meal, he was always up for that. If we were shopping, but not for me, for him, he loved to do shopping for him. But for me, it was boring because there was no reward. Shopping is, will produce dopamine. Um, or if we're having sex and those, and otherwise just like talking, you know, he had a very limited interest in that. And I think it's because he wasn't getting any reward. And if we under, if we can understand this, that they are reward seeking machines, you know, when I realized that I thought, well, then I'm not going to take it personally. It's not that I'm boring. Mm -hmm. It's that he's bored. That's not my fault. Yeah. It's when you said that like talking doesn't give them a reward. It's like, like, why not? Like, of course, like we are like, yeah, the reward is a long-term, uh, deepened trust and better relationship. Right. But, right. and actually, I, I feel like if you really have a good conversation with someone, you actually get a kind of quote unquote reward because it feels like 
Like if you have an insightful conversation with someone, you get new ideas and you're like, oh, wow, like it was interesting to hear that. Or I I, I don't know if you can call I that think, a reward, I mean, but. <laughs> no, and I think you're raising a really good point because I think for narcissists, it depends on the type of conversation. So this also explains why they like to pick fights. Mm-hmm. So they're bored, you know, you're bored. You be in, you know, and I have clients who are, you know, not that this matters, but I've got clients who are like model gorgeous, you know, gorgeous, accomplished fit, you know, like, and, and they're like, what's wrong with me? He's not interested anymore. And it's just like, it's nothing with you. Everybody becomes, you be, you become used to somebody and then you don't get as much of that reward. So what they'll do often, and this was, I saw this myself and I've seen it so many times is, you know, they'll be in this relationship with someone. If it, if it starts feeling a little bit usual, predictable like that, they'll pick a fight. And I don't like to fight. Fighting for me is not fun. It is not stimulating. It's not rewarding. It's scary. But for him, and I've seen this with many other narcissists, it's interesting. Now we're having an interesting conversation. Now, if I can get you riled up, if I can get you upset, that gives me a little reward because I got you upset. I, I won. And also conversations where they're the expert and everyone else is listening to their words Um, This is why, you know, all cult leaders are narcissists. Not all narcissists are cult leaders. All cult leaders are narcissists because they're the wise one and everyone's listening to their words. There's a new article out. There's a new BBC show out about a cult in um, England. And apparently the head of this cult would make everyone get on the phone for like four or five hours a day, if not more, where he just talked. He just talked really and yelled at them and berated them and talked and had all this wisdom and it's called the lighthouse something or other. And that's like, okay, that's a narcissist having a lot of fun. It's not a conversation. Yeah, (laughs) They're getting a lot of dopamine from that because they're the wise one and they're, you know, dominating and winning. And that will give a narcissist dopamine as well. So I think you're, you're absolutely, I think your point is good that it it just depends on the type of conversation. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Thank you. Then what do you think now that we have been talking about this, uh, you know, their relationship with dopamine, does this create kind of uh, additional psychological issues like gambling addiction, et cetera? Yeah, it's, and it's, it's depends on the the personality and the preference of the narcissist, and it might not be true for everyone, but it is generally, so the psychological term is comorbidity. And you will see very commonly that narcissists have a comorbidity like like, um, they're alcoholics or they use drugs or they gamble or they have uh, the guy that I was involved with. I I don't know everything because he was a liar, but I know that he was a compulsive shopper. And so that, you know, that, um, buying something gives us a little hit. <laughs> I mean, it works for me. <laughs> My dopamine is low. I'll go buy something, but I don't spend to the point where I'm in debt. And he did, 
you know, he ran up all of his credit cards because he just, it was like compulsively needed to buy things. So that was it for him. He might've been doing other stuff too. I don't know. Mm. Also, this is why they cheat because you get boring no matter how amazing, wonderful, gorgeous male or female you are. And this is true, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual relationships. They are looking for the next interesting, novel, um, challenging thing. And in fact, in, and not all narcissists cheat and maybe not all cheaters are narcissists, but it's very, very common. And, and it is because they're looking for something new. You've become boring and they're not interested in that more long-term, you know, deepening intimacy. It's also because when you're in a committed relationship and you've promised, you know, to be loyal to someone and then you're not, that's spicy. That's a challenge. You know, Ooh, can I get away with it? They kind of like that. Often they sort of like that extra little, you know, it's stimulating to them because it's forbidden. And you will also see narcissists who are, um, do high risk things. Because if they can play close to the line, if they can push things, it might be extreme sports, it might be trying to, you know, get come really close to the edge of the law or even breaking the law. It's because all of that is really stimulating and their lives. It's like they're, it's like they're a little bit normal life, which for most of us is good enough, makes them feel like they're half dead. Hmm. Um, I know you, you know, many like research and everything. Is there anything that somewhere someone has like kind of tried to look into this, like, uh, for example, the link between narcissism and let's say, I don't know, some addiction like gambling or something yeah. else. It's, Is there anything? It's pretty, it's pretty well known by narcissism experts that oh. when you have someone who's high in narcissism, that it's really common that they have another issue. Um, sometimes it's even the, weirdly hoarding can be part of it. Uh. Um, and so the, it, for me, it's all, there's, there's going to be some kind of biochemical state that the narcissist is trying to manage. They're trying to manage that they're trying to stay, you know, fired up. It's like they're running. It's like their gas tank is always a little low and they're always looking for something in, in, you know, this in narcissism, we call it supply. They're always looking for some form of supply so that they feel like st they feel stimulated. Um, and what happens in the brain, there's a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. It's right here. And what happened, that part of the brain is very, very sensitive to, um, to stimulation. And if it, if it doesn't have it, the two of the chemicals that it most depends on are adrenaline, which is called norepinephrine in the brain and dopamine. And if this part of the brain, um, one of the main researchers on this, she calls it the Goldilocks of the brain because it wants it just right. So if this part of the brain doesn't have enough of these neurotransmitters, it, you can't think as well. You're not as you know, you're not as empathetic. You're not as um, able to think abstractly. It's like the high level function gets compromised. You're just not as sharp. And that can be the case if you have too few of these neurotransmitters or if you have too many. So the mm -hmm. dance between narcissist and target often looks like the narcissist is bored. 
because they've got too few of these neurotransmitters and their brain is sort of not fun, you know, not functioning as well. So they do something to the target to try to get more, like insult them, pick a fight, you know, cheat on, you know, cheat on them or whatever they're doing. They're doing this to try to get their brain back in that Goldilocks zone. The very thing that they're doing will then push the target into too much. And so what, you know, and I used to find this where we would have a, I wasn't even a fight. I would get targeted and get attacked. And, and it was like, I would stop being able to think very well because my brain was getting flooded with neurotransmitters. Meanwhile, it was like, he would get clearer and clearer and clearer and seem happier. And I'm just super upset and can't think, and I can't think of a good thing to say. And I would imagine anybody who's ever been through this with a narcissist will relate to what I just said. Yeah, 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 for sure. And all this, so does all that, what you just said, explain why then, uh, why narcissistic people usually like to provoke like people? And is there something else to this as well? I think it's, I mean, from a biochemical standpoint, they are provoking people because they're bored mm. and they're trying to get some stimulation going so that they feel more normal. And in the early days of a relationship, you are providing that stimulation just by, you know, if we're looking at just romantic relationships, for example, and I know it shows up other places, but you're providing that stimulation by just being wonderful and being new and being different. And, you know, you're new in bed and you're, you've got different ideas and they're getting that stimulation from you. So what their brain says is this is the answer. Anne is the answer. Anne is going to give me everything. You know, she's so stimulating. She's so wonderful. And I'm going to put her on a pedestal as the answer to all my problems. Life will feel good because I'm with Anne. Now, naturally and normally, the more um, familiar we are with something. So dopamine, what it does, and tell me if this is too, if I'm getting too far into the nitty gritty with it. But what dopamine basically does is it tells us where we want to pay attention. It's part of survival. It's saying, mm, this is different. You know, it's like um, if you're driving in the car and another car pulls out, part of the neurochemical response will be an influx of dopamine. It's like, pay attention, pay attention there. And then next time you go past that same driveway, you might get a little bit of dopamine as well as adrenaline to kind of tell you like, Hey, cars come out of there, right? It's all about where we put our attention. And if then, you know, you drive there all the time and you're just used to going that direction and no cars are coming out, you stop getting that dopamine because it becomes familiar and you know what to expect. So mm -hmm. when we know what to expect and when things are familiar, we get less dopamine associated with them. So what happens with the narcissist is you're the answer to their prayers because you're so wonderful and you're so stimulating and you're the one. And then everyone, get they become habituated to you. And so now they're mad because you were supposed to be the answer to their prayers, make, make life interesting, and you're not doing it anymore. And now they're angry with you. And so... 
the normal activities don't give them dopamine. So then now they're going to the provoking and like that. But I think there's a part of that as well, which is they're punishing you for disappointing them just by being, just because they habituated to you. Hmm. They're a weird bunch. I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so, so weird. Yeah. Like how they can't see past that, that actually, yeah, maybe when you do get to know someone, you kind of learn their behavior patterns and it can become like more predictable, for example, how someone who you have known many years, that how they will react or what they think. Like, yeah, you might, you know, get to know someone, but I feel like there is always something that you can learn from someone like another person, even if you have like known them for, for a very long time, like it doesn't end because we yeah. all, all the time we learn new things or we evolve yeah. but they just can't see past that and and like like if i think about it yeah the dopamine yeah it's it's a nice nice feeling if you do get that but it's the oxytocin is also really nice that you really can feel nice. yeah it's feel safe really and nice. like why why yeah. they don't like, like yeah oh, you no. you explained that you that they don't like seem to be affected by that but anyway yeah I don't know exactly why and I would love somebody to do more research on this it's like why is it that they're always looking for this supply for these um you know excitatory neurotransmitters that makes sense to me the only connection that I've found so far and there might be others that I just haven't seen about why they don't seem to be as impacted by oxytocin as as is normal one there is one near one explanation but it doesn't hit well, it doesn't hold for everyone but the research on um oxytocin says that if you are very, testosterone can block oxytocin and oxytocin is part of our empathy it's part of how we feel each other it's part of how we trust each other like that and to me this explains a little bit why um and i don't mean to throw anybody under the bus but like young men they get they have a very you know there's a surge in testosterone um when you know you're in like young adulthood and why they very typically don't tend to score as high on or you know, on, <laughs> on empathy and that's just sort of part of the development and it's part of what we're going through but most people you know uh grow into it but if you actually and the researcher there's a guy named Paul Zach who researches oxytocin and what he's found is if he gives someone oxytocin cream they're or not oxytocin cream, testosterone cream, their um, oxytocin levels will go down and they will start feeling less empathetic. So that's the only connection I can find. Now, in the case of the guy that I was with, he actually took testosterone because he wanted to stay young and have his, you know, have good muscle definition and all of that. And, and one of the things that it showed me is mm, somebody taking a lot of testosterone, which he did is not somebody I would ever be in a relationship with again. Now that I know that it, it's actually because they use the same receptor. And so it's like the, in the brain, the receptor for oxytocin testosterone gets in and blocks it. Um... So but I, there must be other reasons because I don't think it's, that's the only one, but that can be certainly 
why you don't, why you want to be careful if you're involved with someone taking steroids or taking a lot of testosterone, that they may have lower levels of of ability to feel connected to you in terms of a bonding kind of way. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. That was interesting. And yeah, definitely. Like I'm thinking about all the female narcissists that yeah, like, females. Who knows? Tend, I mean, yeah. Maybe they're higher into, I mean, we all oh. have to start including yeah. women. So maybe they're higher in that. I don't really know, but I think there must be other reasons mm. why mm. they don't seem to go into the next stage that is normal in relationships where you are not as excited by the person, but you're more, you're in a safer, more intimate, developed into a more intimate place. And they yeah. don't, they don't go into, they don't seem to go into that stage as easily. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, like without thinking from the neuroscience perspective, I feel like they just don't, uh, like have the skills to because they are not able to be vulnerable with themselves like kind of look into themselves they like have zero self-awareness I, I feel like then it's really hard to like in practice to form deep connections with someone if you have so many uh, underlying issues like you're like you have just suppressed your own negative emotions like it's you have these walls um surround like yeah uh, I think that, yeah yeah, so I think hard. that's really fair. And, you know, and I'm always reminded of that, the, the, the emotion that's under the surface for narcissists. Now, this is not necessarily true for psychopaths, but for narcissists, it's shame. That's mm. what's buried underneath all of it. And we tend to think about, and I know, you know, you know, you know, this, but uh, for a lot of folks, you know, sort of the, the, the idea of narcissism is somebody looks in the mirror all the time and they just love themselves so much. And, and that's the original myth of narcissus is that he loved himself, but it's not true. They hate themselves, but it's buried. It's under the water. And for the most part, they're completely unaware of it, mm. but that's, what's there is that they don't want to, you know, really be vulnerable or they can't really be vulnerable because it is, there is what is underneath that is crippling shame. They think they would just disappear if they ever just, you know, were real. So I think yeah. you're right. Go yeah. There. Great. Then uh, can you talk more about like, can narcissism be inherited? Like the, yeah. So I would like <laughs> yeah. to know more it's about the good, genetic. It's such, a good, it's such a good question. And so we know that there. So we, so there's a gene, let's just talk about it. There's a gene and, and always with genetics, there's a question of like, we all have genes, you have genes, I have genes that are not turned on. So we have genes, but then the environment, it's like a seed and you can plant a seed in wonderful soil and it will, you know, turn into a plant. You can have other seeds that don't get planted in that soil and that don't turn into something. So we have to think about epigenetics, genetic expression, as well as just genetics. But there is a gene and it's called the warrior gene. And it impacts something else. It impacts another neurotransmitter called serotonin. And the warrior gene um, is, uh, it has to do with how we, how we, has to do with the amount of serotonin, I believe, and how we process serotonin. And one of the things that serotonin does, serotonin is also, uh, a, people tend to think of it as a, you know, a mood chemical like dopamine, 
a positive one. But one of the things that serotonin does is it helps us regulate our emotions. And this, this gene divergent, it's the M-A-O-A-L <laughs> variation of this, this gene. Um, they call it the warrior gene because one of the things that happens is we don't, the serotonin doesn't regulate our emotions. So if you have this gene, um, it's, it's absolutely, they find it very consistently in psychopaths, but they've also found evidence for it in other cluster B types. So in psychopaths, sociopaths, narcissists, and even borderline personality, not as consistently necessarily, but it can be a genetic component. So I'm going to give you an example of somebody with the MAOAL gene, the warrior gene. So most of us, if we're driving down the road and somebody cuts us off in traffic, you know, maybe is really aggressive or even, you know, flips the finger or is really nasty. For most of us, we get mad for them. We're like, you know, for me, at least I'm like, get mad for a moment. And then my serotonin kicks in and I go, whatever, you know, the worst I might say is I hope they get in an act, <laughs> hope they get in an accident, but don't hurt anybody else with the warrior gene. It is more like, and this is not across the board, of course, but it's like the responses I'm going to get them. That's the kind of person that will follow them off the freeway might pull a gun. You know, there's this, like, I can't regulate my anger or how I've gotten really upset at this. And that's why they call it the warrior gene. Cause those people will, go after folks who they consider to have hurt them. There's a um, really interesting guy, James Fallon, F-A-L-L-O-N. And he's a, he's a um, neuroscientist who is a psychopath or is genetic. He's like, he's got, he's a, he's a psychopath. Um, but he, but he basically says he has the brain structure of a psychopath and he has this gene, but he was raised in a really loving family. And so he's not as bad a psychopath. I still think if you read his book, I think it's called The Psychopath Inside. You're like, you say you're not as bad, but you've done some crappy stuff. But he talks about, he has this gene and he says that he says, I've heard him in interviews say, if you do something to me, I will get revenge. I do not care how long it takes. I will get revenge. That is what a psychopath says. Most of us are like, you know, we get mad for a moment and then we regulate and we can balance and assess, you know, or even take a perspective and go, maybe that person was on the way to the hospital. I mean, who knows what it was, why they cut me off. I don't have to take everything personally and I don't have to get revenge, but that gene will drive toward that kind of behavior. And you can see that in some narcissists. So that part of it, and then, you know, maybe we have it. I don't know. I've never been genetically tested. Maybe I have it, but it's not turned on in me. Mm. It's not expressed in me. Um, and that can then, you know, get turned on by that early childhood abuse and neglect. Again, I don't think it is as across the board with narcissists as it is with psychopaths, but it does show up in some narcissists, cluster B, like that. Okay. Warrior gene. Interesting. Warrior gene. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's I don't first, think you want to have that. <laughs> yeah. Like it sounded first like we're like, oh, what is that? But then you explained what it actually means. So 
yeah. I don't know. Is there so is this warrior gene the only one that is kind of being known of, or is there like I don't know some it's other? A, it's a, it's a big one. Um, psychopaths, so you know, a little bit of difference between psychopath and narcissist. I don't know of anything else genetically mm. with narcissists. There might be. I don't know it nothing that you know immediately comes to mind that is different or is inheritable but there we may find that there really is there may be a gene that is actually um uh working with dopamine there might be a genetic thing there um that is that has an impact on the dopamine that I was mm -hmm. talking about that might be genetic and it could be another reason why it runs in families but it uh but it's not across the board. So I don't know. Okay. If we look at psychopaths and one of the things they do say about psychopaths is psychopaths are born. They're born, not made. Now, James Fallon says it's a three-legged stool. And it's, um, if you are, you know, like he was raised in a really kind, loving family. And so he is not a really nasty psychopath. But when you when you take these two factors, one is the genetics, one is brain structure. And I'll talk about that in a sec. And then you mix them with an abusive environment, you can get serial killers. And so the brain structure of a psychopath, and one of the things that's different between a psychopath and a narcissist is that narcissists can feel bad about what they do. They might not be able to stop doing it. They can feel shame. They can be afraid they might get caught. Um, that's more of a narcissistic response. A psychopath in their brain, part of the brain structure is they have less areas of their brain that are devoted, that are uh, attuned to fear. And so Dr. Romani, who's one of my heroes in this whole field, she has a funny, she says, basically a psychopath can have a dead body in the trunk and get stopped by the police and not, and you won't see them get nervous at all. Their heart rate won't go up. Right. I can be doing the speed limit on a, you know, and get stopped by the police. And my, I'm already sure that I'm guilty of a million crimes, right? <laughs> but a psychopath won't feel that they won't feel it's like, they don't feel fear. And so that means that the way they see the world is really different. We're kind of like bugs to them. Not as much the case with a narcissist who can feel fear. They just want to get away with things. So, but a psychopath is like, you know, life is just sort of an interesting experiment and you're a bug, mm. Ugh, which is really a dangerous way to be. Yeah. Uh, so you kind of have hinted towards the differences between narcissists, sociopaths and psychopaths, but uh, can you elaborate how does science explain the differences between these three? So narcissists, sociopaths, and psychopaths. And we haven't mentioned sociopaths yet. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so in the diagnostic and statistical manual, they talk about cluster B personalities. And they basically say the, the cluster B personalities, if I'm remembering accurately, are histrionic personality disorder, borderline narcissistic personality disorder, and then antisocial personality disorder. And they don't differentiate in the, in the diagnostic manual. There's not a differentiation between sociopath and psychopath. 
And one of the things that's important to know about this field, and one of the reasons that I sort of speak about it somewhat cautiously, and I say I don't know a lot, is it is that, you know, there is no absolute here yet. And so you will see people, you'll see experts say everything from it's very clear and I absolutely know that psychopaths are born and sociopaths are made. You'll see others say, I don't really think there is such a thing as a sociopath. It's either a narcissist or a psychopath and be just as convinced. So why, you know, and I can talk a little bit about, I tend to go with the more born but not made um, view, but I have to tell you, there's people out there who I respect who are like, I don't think there is such a thing as sociopath. So it's, there's the, the field is so new and emerging that I just, I encourage everyone to just don't take any one thing, including me, don't even take anything I say as the absolute, like get a lot, you know, look at it. What jet, you know, you'll get a general agreement, but not specific. So the the view that I would first learn to make sense to me is that psychopaths, you have this, like they have smaller, you know, there's areas that are very attuned to fear in the brain that are actually smaller in a psychopath. And you have this warrior gene and you have people that are very, find it very easy to hurt people like that, like that. And there is a lot of evidence that that is born, including you start seeing signs of it fairly young. And I think mm. one of the diagnostic criteria is they have exhibited signs of this, like before age 14 or 15. I think that's one of the diagnostic criteria. Whereas for other, you know, for a sociopath, you might not see it as early. Um, sociopaths tend to act a lot like psychopaths, but are have been, you know, with this real lack of remorse, but it's more the case that it has been created through extreme abuse. And that's where you get this behavior that feels sort of like a psychopath, but they might not have the genetic profile for it. And they might not show up the same way on a brain scan, but they're going to act in a fairly similar way um, to a, to a psychopath. And not everybody even agrees with that. Mm -hmm. And then a narcissist, the agreement tends to be they are made and they are created through um, abuse. And that abuse can have two different forms. And so there's the one type of a narcissist, which is you really, they have just been, you know, beaten, emotionally abused, um, treated very, very badly. And they become a narcissist because they're, they're so fractured within from how they were, they were treated. Um, the other way is, I, it's still abuse. It's just a different type. It's basically neglect, emotional neglect, which is abusive, but combined with being told that they're perfect or wonderful. So this is the Donald Trump way of creating a narcissist. He was told he was the, in fact, better than his older brother, and he was perfect and he could do no wrong. And nobody stopped him when he was bullying his other siblings. But there was in that family, there was no love. There was, there was a lot of things, but no emotional response. And that's a really good way to create a narcissist. Tell them they're perfect and wonderful, but emotionally neglect them. 
And if you're interested, if anybody's interested in that, Mary Trump's book about her uncle, Donald Trump, is fascinating. It's like a recipe card for how to create a narcissist. So. Mm, thank you. That all makes makes sense. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, some people, when people say, oh, narcissists are created by a, a, abusive childhood, then like... Um, some people, when we hear, hear the word abusive, we might only think like, oh, physical abuse, but and not yeah. like understand that it's also the, you know, emotional neglect and overpraising that yep. really messes up with their, you know, image yeah. of themselves and who they are. And they don't get the skills anyways, the emotional, any, any of those skills, like emotional regulation or just basic skills of how people interact and right yeah. and even to the point one of the things that really struck me in mary trump's book is she talked about how donald would be would be really bullying would really bully his siblings and how that was like rewarded that's a great way i know crazy huh but i want to just i want to just underline something that you said that people think it's only created through abuse or they think that you know, praising a child too much will make them a narcissist. As I understand it, it's only if you praise them, but don't also love them and show them love and show them empathy because they are watching how you relate to, to them. And so the kid who's like, the, the, the parent who's like, well, you're the best football player and I want to see, you know, get out there and crush them. But then when that child comes and says, you know, I, I'm not, I think I might have to break up with my girlfriend and the parents like, well, just be a man about it. You know, that's, you know, that, yeah, they're getting praised, but they're not getting felt. They're not getting the emotional connection. They're not learning what that is like. So they think their whole life is about how they perform and that the only way to stay safe is to continue to be the best. So that's the problem with telling your child they're the best. But if you, you know, if you're like, yeah, you're great and you're what you know you're wonderful and i'm so proud of you but you also give them the emotional reflection um and also help them process their emotions i don't think you're going to create a narcissist that way yeah yeah that's a great, great point <laughs> i haven't seen it yeah yeah agreed thank you so much and and yeah i think today we had some interesting uh, questions and interesting conversation so I, I want to thank everyone for listening and thank you and bet so much for for um, coming here again and sharing your knowledge it was really um it was really interesting to listen to you and have this talk with you all right it's always a pleasure i love to talk about this and it's a complicated area so it needs lots of discussion If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.